Amen, church. Very good. We'll go ahead and have a seat, everyone. Thank you, Shane. Let's turn to the passage that was just read, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, as we continue our series, Vanity Fair, through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to start with this. There's a really famous painting by the Flemish artist Quentin Massis called The Moneylender and His Wife. Here's a picture of it. And to the left is, my left here is the moneylender, and to my right here now is the moneylender's wife. And there's something going on here that I want to draw your attention to. The moneylender is counting his money. Maybe you can get a glimpse of that. He's counting up his coins and he's trying to find out how much he's going to make, exchanging money or lending and getting money back. And his wife is trying to read a prayer book or some kind of spiritual work. But if you notice, her countenance is distracted. Everybody see that? She's got her prayer book open. She's trying to concentrate on the Lord, trying to do something spiritual. Good woman here. But the husband is distracting her with his coins that he's counting up. And instead of being fixated on the prayer book, she's fixated on that coin. And what the artist is trying to do here, Masses, is he's trying to tell you that, you know, money can be a distraction to serving God. Don't, you don't have to amen that. We all know that's true. <laughs> money can be a distraction. You know, I love this painting, and I love the message that's conveyed here. I was actually directed this, to this painting by Phil Riken and his commentary on Ecclesiastes. If you read one commentary on Ecclesiastes, read Phil Riken's commentary. He's a Presbyterian, but that's okay. I still love him. And here's what Riken says about this painting. It, it talks about how Macis, this painter, actually lived in Antwerp in a time when Antwerp was like the center of business, there was all kind of money exchanging hands and everybody was getting rich. And as a critique to culture, he painted this painting saying, you know, it's so easy for us to be distracted by money. You might say, well, you know, that's 16th century Europe, Pastor Tony. We don't have trouble with that in America today. But don't we now? Don't we deal with the same kind of stuff? Here's what Riken says about this painting. He says, Masih saw how easily money can pull our souls away from the worship of God. All of us feel this tension. We know it. We know that God demands our highest allegiance. We believe that nothing is more precious than the message of the gospel, the forgiveness of our sins, and the free gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. Yet, we are easily distracted like the moneylender's wife. Sometimes we would rather thumb through a mail order catalog than listen to what God has to say in his word. That's interesting there, that reference to the mail order catalog, because that's kind of dated now, right? I mean, this commentary is not even that old. Who, who does mail order catalogs? Why do well, mail order catalogs when you got Amazon Prime, right? Well, you can order anything. And have it delivered on your doorstep in two days or less. And even though we live maybe in a different world, the problem is still the same. The principle is still the same. 
We get distracted by money and stuff. Don't we now? And that stuff can pull our souls away from the worship of God, says Reichen. I agree. The title of this message today is God or Mammon. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon, Matthew 6, verse 24. Who are you going to serve? Harvest Decatur. Who is your God? What I want to do is encourage you this morning to build your life really on one central conviction. And this is what Solomon is is talking about in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And here's the great thing, you know, as we talk about money, and we're going to talk about money this morning. If you can build your life around this central conviction, okay, then you won't really struggle with money. You can, you know what? You can actually enjoy money and enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Enjoy the gifts that you can buy with money if you have this central conviction as the controlling paradigm of your life. Y'all know what that is? From Ecclesiastes 5? It's this, the fear of the Lord. If you got that, if, you, if, if that's really the controlling thing in your life, you can enjoy money. You can use money for good purposes. You can, you can enjoy making money. And that's where I want to get you this morning. I want to get you to where the fear of the God is the controlling paradigm in your life. And not just because of money. There's some other things that are covered here, and I'll, I'll give you four. Four exhortations. Go ahead and write these down. All of these exhortations flow from the fear of the Lord. It starts with the fear of the Lord, and then these exhortations come from that, okay? I'll give you four. Here's the first. Fear God and worship well. Fear God and worship well. Here's what Solomon says in verse 1. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. The fools. And this is, this is strange counsel coming from an old cynic like Solomon. But it seems like this old cynic still knows who's in charge. He still knows who to fear. He still knows that you need to guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Because God is not someone you want to mess with. And I mean, he built, helped build the temple of God. So what he's saying here is when you do that, Old Testament Israelites, don't go flippantly into the house of the Lord. Don't go disingenuously into the house of the Lord. Go to listen, not to speak. Go to offer sacrifices, not the hypocritical sacrifices of fools. And we need to consider how to apply this in this New Testament era because this is not our church building where we're at. This is not the same as the Old Testament temple, the Old Testament house of God, okay? And I'm not a priest, so don't bring your animals to me to sacrifice. It's different. Technically speaking, in the New Testament, you are the house of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it is different in our New Testament era, but I will say this. When we gather as saints, when we're here like we are now, when we gather, God's presence is with us in a unique way. The Holy Spirit that indwells all of us, it, it's like we all get this kind of corporate upgrade when we gather together and worship. We sound better when we sing together. 
And the worship is intensified. And, and I'll just say here, I think there is something applicational. Guard your steps when you go and worship before the Lord on Sunday morning, the day of his resurrection. So let's just talk practically. Don't have a fight with your kids on the way to church on Sunday morning, right? Don't insult your husband's driving because he drives like an old lady. And if you did that this morning, apologize, okay? And let's, let's get on with it. And, and that preparation, I think, too, can even go to Saturday night. Watch your Saturday nights, right? Don't, don't spend your Saturday nights staying up late watching American Gladiators, all right? Or your favorite television show, whatever that might be. We talked about this yesterday at membership class, and we just talked about like how to prepare yourself for Sunday, how to get things right. And, and isn't it amazing how Satan is so active on Saturday night? He's so active on Sunday morning. You, you have a fight with your wife, and you, had, had, you hadn't had a fight with her in six days. All of a sudden, it's like the whole world is falling down on top of you. And you know, there might be wisdom in spending a little time in the parking lot before you come into church. And just getting a clear conscience and just apologizing or, or even, you know, coming before a member of the hospitality team. I say, will you pray for me? I, you know, my heart's not right this morning and I just need, I want a clear conscience as I go to worship the Lord. Our, our hospitality team would love to do that with you, right? And let me say this too, just, I mean, this should go for all six days of the week, not just seven days of the week, not just Saturday night, but don't. Don't stay up late on Saturday night watching a movie that would make your grandma blush. That's not the right way to prepare your heart for worship. Y'all with me? We all know people, I'm sure you can even think of some people who live like the devil six days a week and then they live like an angel on Sunday morning. Don't be like that. Don't do that. You want to have a clear conscience as you come before the Lord. You want, to, you want to come and you want to worship and you want to guard your heart and guard your steps as you come here. Now, let me say this too, and I'm trying to thread a needle here, so stay with me. There are times on Sunday morning, I know you, 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 maybe you had a rough week and you just don't feel like going to worship. You don't feel worthy of going to worship, right? Because you were particularly sinful that week. You were really greedy. You were really angry at your kids. You, I mean, you were, you were a sinner, worse than you should be. And I think Satan will get in there and he'll say, you're not worthy to go to church. You need to stay home. You're going to pollute everybody else if you go to church. Can I just tell you something? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you need to do that in the parking lot before you come in, you do that. And let me say it more directly than that. You know, yeah, we get, we sin, but you know what? There's forgiveness, right? That's why we're quick to repent because God is so gracious in giving us forgiveness. And, and let me just challenge you right now because I know Satan's going to be active on Saturday night and Sunday morning. Don't let Satan guilt you into worshiplessness. Don't do that. Clear your conscience, confess your sin. Prepare the way and then come in here and worship God. And if you need to do that at the end of the service this morning, say, you know what, Pastor Tony, I don't have a clear conscience this morning. I got something heavy. Well, we'll be here, okay? We'll be here at the front of this sanctuary. 
after communion, and you can come, and we'll pray with you, and we'll walk through that, okay? Write this down as number two in your notes. Solomon exhorts us to fear God and worship well. He also exhorts us to fear God and watch what you say. This is the part where all the introverts in the room say, yeah, Pastor Tony, get them. <laughs> Sick those introverts. They talk too much. Those extroverts, I should say. Solomon says this, verse two. This hurts my feelings as an extrovert. Be not rash with your mouth, Whew. nor let your heart be hasty to utter word, utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Some of you, I know you want to build a plaque that says that. Let your words be few. And then when the extroverts come over, you just point them to the plaque. <laughs> Less talking, please. Now Solomon Solomon gives us similar instructions in the book of Proverbs. When he was a younger man, he wrote something very similar. He said, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. That is such good counsel. The New Testament as well, you know, James says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Right? Your mama said it best. You got two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you talk. Did your mama tell you that? Your mama was right. There's a reason for us to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And that's a broad principle throughout the Bible, guarding and limiting our speech. But in Ecclesiastes chapter five, I just want you to know it's a little more specific than that. It's not just speech in general. It's actually guarding our speech before the Lord in prayer. Y'all see that? You know, Jesus said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. You know, it's not a matter of volume in terms of your words. And so when you approach the Lord, you know, let your words be few in terms of your idle words, your babbling words that don't mean anything. Or even, I think, because there's this reference here to God is in heaven and you on earth, that kind of lack of deference for God. Don't let that be in your speech as you're talking to him in prayer. Okay? Guard the way in which you talk to the Lord. And, and I'm threading a needle here too. So let me, I'm an extrovert, so I got to talk out loud sometimes. So I'm not discouraging you from that. But I, I think there's a way, extroverts, introverts, we all can be a little too casual with the Lord in prayer. Because in modern evangelical Christianity, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my buddy, buddy. It's like, hey, what's going on, God? Good to see you. And we forget that Jesus, Colossians 1, look it up, created the universe. And you are infinitesimally small compared to him. Don't forget that, even as you pray conversationally with him. And I am threading a needle here. Some of you do need to process out loud. I get that. And I don't think we need to come before the Lord, you know, with like Elizabethan English or something, you know. Oh, Jehovah, come now and succor me who speaketh to me. We don't need to do that. We can be conversational with the Lord and at the same time be reverent, right? Teach your kids how to do this. Be reverent and be deferential, never forgetting that the God we're praying to created 
billions of galaxies. I, I heard this last week that there's a debate now. Is, is it billions or trillions of galaxies? Scientists disagree. Does it really matter? I mean, we are so infinitesimally small compared to that. Solomon says in verse 3, let's keep looking at his argument here. He says, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, says Solomon, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than for you to vow and not pay. In other words, you know, earlier he said, let your, vows, let your words be few. Now he says, let your vows be few. It's better, in fact, if you don't intend on following through with your vow to not vow at all. That's better for your conscience. That's better for your reputation. That's better for you as a Christian before the world. As you make promises and you sign contracts and you say things. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I officiate marriages. So let me just say publicly for everybody here, everybody listening, all the kids growing up here. Don't ask me to officiate your wedding if you don't plan on following through with your vows. Don't ask me. And by the way, I'm going to ask you, are you serious about this or not? I've turned down people because I didn't think they were serious about their vows. That is not a little thing to stand before God and say, I will be faithful to this person until death do us part. I mean, that, that should be a burdensome, onerous thing as you go off and do that. It'd be better for you to not say that than to say it and back off of it. Remember Jesus' parable about the two sons? Do you remember that parable? By the way, just a little, a little note of bene here on typology. I believe that Jesus is the true and better Solomon. So Jesus spouts wisdom. And it's even better than Solomon. Because Solomon is a cynic. He's an old man who's got a little bit of wisdom, but there's a cynicism behind it. There's none of that with Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Solomon. And he, he gives us some good wisdom. And one of the things that he gives in parable is the parable of the two sons. And the, the father asks the two sons to complete a test. The first son says he won't do it, but then he does it. And the second, the second son promises, I'll do it, and then doesn't do it. And then Jesus asks his disciples, who did the father's will? They all know, you all know, it was the first son who said he wouldn't and then did it. How much better would it be for you to say, I'll do it, and then you follow through with it? Because what else did Jesus say? Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, so when you sign a contract, when you give your word, when you give a promise, when you give a handshake and you say, I'm going to do it, you follow through with it. That's what Solomon says. And we need to lead the world in that as Christians in terms of following through with vows. Look at verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands for your, your unwillingness to follow through with a vow? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one that you must fear. Everybody see that? Fear God and watch what you say. Fear God. You know what else I hear Solomon saying here in verse 6 and 7? He's saying, watch out for dreamers. Watch out for smooth talkers out there. Watch out for politicians who promise you the world on a platter and don't fear God and have no intention on following through with what they say. Can I say this too as a pastor, as a preacher? 
Watch out for preachers who tell you to do stuff, who are silver-tongued, and they don't fear God. Watch out for people like that. You might say, Pastor Tony, aren't you a preacher? Yes, I am. And when I stand before you and preach this word, can I just tell you, I tremble at this. You know what was awesome last week? I got to sit right there and listen to Hang preach. I was like, amen, Pastor, preach it. I could do this every week. I love it when Ryan preaches. I love when I elders preach. Can I just say this? This has hit me hard this week. So forgive me for being too autobiographical here, but I don't come up here and preach to you from God's word because I like the sound of my voice. I actually like Shane Franklin's voice better than mine. I wish I could talk like that. I don't get up here because I, I like drawing attention to myself. I get up and preach the word because God has given me a gift and I've got to exercise it. And like Jeremiah in the Old Testament, it is a fire in my bones if I don't talk. If I don't say, thus says the Lord, that's why I do this. But let, let me assure you, there is a fear of God that comes because I'm a professional talker. I talk and you listen. It puts the fear of God in me. Pray that I would talk well. Pray that Ryan would talk well. Pray that your elders as they preach would represent God well and fear God. Let's keep going. Write this down as number three. Fear God and worship well. Fear God and watch what you say. And thirdly, fear God and put money in its proper place. This, this, this is so practical. I love Ecclesiastes. Fear God and put money in its proper place. Let's talk about mammon. Y'all know what mammon is? I told you y'all don't have to you know, pray with words from the King James Bible, but then I use these obscure King James words. And that's because I memorized the Bible in the King James when I was a kid. Mammon in the old King James is a word that means wealth. Or it's, it's actually derived from an Aramaic word. It's not an English word originally, which means wealth or money or riches or even property. So when Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon, he's saying, choose your God. Choose your God, people. God is a jealous God. He doesn't allow for polytheism. So you're going to have to choose who you're going to serve, who's going to be your God, what is your religion. And Jesus says it can't be me and money. You've got to choose one or the other. And here's the good news. I alluded to this already. If, if, we get, if we get it right, in other words, if we acknowledge Jesus is on his throne, submit to him fully, then money can be a really beautiful thing, a gift from him that we can use for his glory. You know, if we, if we get it wrong, if we put money on the throne instead of the Lord, money will punish you. And that's what this verse, this passage is about. You will suffer because of that. But if you get it right, if you put God on your throne, then money can be a beautiful thing. Take it from Solomon. Solomon knows. Solomon made a lot of money in his life. In fact, Chronicles says that in Solomon's day, silver and gold were as plentiful as stone in Jerusalem. There was lots of money in Solomon's kingdom. And here's what he says. Look at verse 8. 
He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter when you see injustice. We're sinners and there's sinners that lead over us. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. In other words, there's, there's bureaucratic nightmares in the Old Testament world just like there are in our world today. And here's what's key. Look at verse 9. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. What does that mean? What he's saying here is don't demonize money because there are poor people and there's injustice in the land. That's bound to happen in the sinful world. But the ideal is that the king will be committed to cultivating the fields. The ideal is that the king and his subjects know how to work and know how to produce wealth. That is good. When a nation or a government is doing its job well, it incentivizes work. Did y'all hear me on that? I'm going to say that again. When a government is doing its job well, it incentivizes work, people to work hard and to build wealth. When a government isn't doing its job well, it disincentivizes the work, hard work. We'll just send you a paycheck. Just sit around, do whatever you want. That's not good government. That's what Solomon's saying here. And, and to that, you might say, well, okay, well, if it's good to work, and if it's good for the government to encourage us to work, well, let's, let's just go all in. Let's sell out for that. Let's work like crazy. Make lots of money. Watch it now. Because there's a trap there, too. Solomon says, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. I mean, I learned that in my macroeconomics class when I was in college. There's an insatiable desire for stuff. The economic system is built on that. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So when the government encourages people to work hard and make money, that's good. But when the people get obsessed about making money, which a lot of Americans are, let's face it, and building wealth as an end in itself, that's not good. In fact, I would I'll say it even stronger than that. When you, when you get obsessed by it, it starts to take over. Your, there's, there's something dehumanizing about that. You become less than human because you're, you're just obsessed with something so trivial, ultimately. If I can just make a literary reference to it, you become like the dwarves in Tolkien's The Hobbit who become overcome with what they call dragon sickness. He's obsessed with money and gold. The great oil tycoon from the 19th century, John D. Rockefeller, Someone asked him once how much money was enough. And he famously replied, just a little more. Just a little bit more. That's a trap. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Verse 11, this is the ancient equivalent to mo' money, mo' problems. You got more money, you got more people knocking on your door who want a piece of that. And, I mean, Solomon, this is coming from Solomon, the wealthiest man in the world. Solomon had lots of money. You know why he had lots of money? He needed lots of money. He has 700 wives. He had 300 concubines. Who knows how many kids? And then you got uncles and aunts and nephews and 
Everybody's coming to Solomon looking for some scratch. Give me some of that money, Solomon. And it makes you crazy. More money, more problems. That's what he's saying. How would you have liked to have been the lawyer divvying up Solomon's estate after he died? How many people showed up for that? Looking for a piece of that inheritance. There's an old expression that goes like this. Tell me if y'all have heard this before. Where there's a will, there's a relative. <laughs> right? If only that wasn't true. There's this great moment in The Fiddler on the Roof where Tevya, he's talking to his future son-in-law, this uh, cynic and this insurrectionist, uh, Perchik. And Perchik is this idealist. And he tells, to Te- he tells Tevya, he says, money is the world's curse. Money is the world's curse. And Tevya says, may God smite me with that curse. <laughs> if only I could be cursed by God with money. We do have this complicated relationship with money, Right. Look at verse 12. Sleep is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The day laborer, who doesn't have a lot of things to worry about, he sleeps soundly. The rich man, on the other hand, has indigestion. More money, more problems. He's up late at night. Less money, less problems. Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Have you ever thought about that? Why did he say that? Blessed are the poor, especially in light of what Solomon's. You know why Jesus said that? It's not just because the, the poor sleep easier than those who, have rich, who are rich, who have lots of stuff. It's because the poor have fewer barriers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because rich people, and Jesus talks about this too, they like to hold on to their wealth as some kind of false sense of security. You don't do that when you're poor. You go right to Jesus, and they did. Rich young ruler comes and he's, he can't let go of his wealth. Blessed are the poor, says Jesus. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, he says this just as a paraphrase for Ecclesiastes. He says, the more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. The more you have, the more people, including the government, will come after it. The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you'll leave behind when you die because you can't take it with you. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, says Solomon. Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt. Can't sleep at night. He's got insomnia. He's got indigestion. He's working so hard to keep it all together. And those riches, verse 14, were lost in a bad venture. He put it in the stock market, the stock market tanked, lost all his money. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Let's just track what Solomon's saying here about money. These are helpful warnings. First, he says that the riches, the riches of a rich man are addictive and unsatisfactory. Verse 10, then he says that wealth attracts all these human leeches who, who want to take the rich man and give him no peace. Verse 11, then he says the, the riches of the rich man cause insomnia. You can't sleep at night. And now after all that, he says that the riches are fleeting and you could lose them in a bad venture. So here's a rich guy 
warning us against the dangers of riches. And to that, you might say, yeah, Solomon, that's rich. You know, if riches are a curse, may God smite me. But hold on now. We live in the wealthiest country in the world. We know that this is true, don't we? I mean, you don't even have to have that much by American standards to know that this is true. That riches are fleeting. That there's a danger with stuff, having too much stuff. That there's a worrisomeness that comes the more you have, isn't there? I think even... I mean, just set aside for a second the fact that Solomon is inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's writing scripture here. Even apart from that, we just look at this and we say, he's right. Riches are dangerous. Riches are fleeting. Isn't that true? Michael Jackson died and he was in debt, even though he made billions of dollars throughout his life. He lost it. And, and that's not... It's not just an anomaly. That happens a lot. That riches are fleeting, that you can lose it. And look at verse 13. Riches were lost in a bad venture. Take note of that, Bill Gates. If you're listening to this podcast, listen up. Take that, Jeff Bezos. Take note of that, Elon Musk. With your $300 billion in counting. Better watch out. To that, you might say, come on, Pastor, Elon Musk, he's not going to lose $300 billion on a bad venture. He's going to have plenty of money to pass on to his children. All right. Maybe so. Maybe we'll all be driving Teslas in a few years. I don't know. I'll tell you one thing that Elon Musk can't escape. And it's verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? More money, more problems. And then at the end of it, you die penniless and go into the grave naked as you came. Great. Death is the great leveler, right? Have, has Solomon talked about this already? Death, you know, kind of emptying our bank accounts. Yeah, he has. And, and you know, for Solomon, the, the eminence of death, it's, it's like this pressing, burdensome reality on all human life that he can't escape. And, and he must be close to death, I would think. It's just, it's just weighing heavy. You're going to die. We're all going to die. We're all going to die soon, and you can't take your money with you. I heard this last week, a story about a, a man, a very rich man, who wanted to be buried with his riches. So he made his wife promise him to bury him with his riches. So she said, okay. So after he died, they put him in the casket, and she wrote him a check. She put that check on his chest and they put him in the ground. There you go. There's all your money. Wouldn't you know it? He never cashed a check. <laughs> That's a wise woman right there. You can't take it with you. Naked he came from his mother's womb. Naked he returned. Look at verse 17. Moreover, all of his days 
The rich man, he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. This is Ebenezer Scrooge, man. Just making him angry, not making him happy. Martin Luther said this. You guys know I love quoting Martin Luther. can read this on the screen. He said, God permits the very riches in which people trust to bring about the ruin of those who own them. God permits the very riches in which people trust to bring about their own ruin. And then as a final cruel irony, at the end of their lives, they die penniless. You know, Job, in the Bible, he's the great sufferer, right? In wisdom literature. And if you remember, at the beginning of the book, he loses everything. He's a rich man, but he loses everything. He loses his family, even. Satan makes this wager with God and accuses Job. The only reason he follows you is because you bless him. You take away the blessings, he's not going to serve you. You know, it's a relationship of convenience, Job and you, Lord. So, so the Lord says, all right, Satan, take it away. We'll see what happens. So Satan did. He took away his wealth, took away his children. You remember what Job said at the end of chapter 1? He sounds like Solomon at the beginning. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you say that, Harvesticator? God took it all away? I mean, the, the voice of the martyrs video that we watched what an inspiration those believers are to us. Could you change places with them and say what Job says here? I'll tell you what, Job is the great example in the Bible of a man who chose to serve God and not mammon. His heart was towards the Lord. And with all that, you might ask, okay, Pastor Tony, so is, is money evil? Is it wrong for us to make money or to spend money? Pastor Tony, is there something wrong with me if I'm good at making money? No. No, there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible clearly says that money is morally neutral. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's a big difference. And if you have the fear of God in your life as the controlling paradigm for how you live and how you exist, can I just tell you, you can make a lot of money. You, I mean, you can be like R.G. Letourneau. You can make tons of money and then tithe 90% of it back to the Lord. I, I pray that there's some R.G. Letourneaus in our church right now that are growing up to do that to make money and to enjoy money and to use it for God's glory. But you gotta get that paradigm right. You gotta have the fear of the Lord as a controlling interest in your life. And then if you have it, here's what Solomon says next, you can enjoy life. You can enjoy life and the good gifts that God gives you. Here's the final point from the message, you can write this down as number four. Fear God and enjoy life. Fear God, put money in its proper place, and then enjoy life as long as the fear of the Lord is the controlling 
paradigm of what you're doing. Pastor Tony, can I buy my kids Christmas presents? My grandkids Christmas presents? Yes, you can. Yes. Can I spend money on them? Yes. Can I take my kids to Disney World? Yes. Not my idea of a great vacation, but go knock yourself out. Can I buy a new car, Pastor Tony? Can I buy a Tesla? Yes. Actually, before I say yes, let me say this. Do you fear God? Fear God and do whatever you want. You know, the church father, Augustine, he talked about discerning God's will for your life, and he said, love God and do whatever you will. In other words, if you love God rightly, if your mind is set right, then all these other things will take care of themselves. And I think that's right. And I would just add to that, fear God and do whatever you want. Fear God and do whatever you want. In other words, if you fear God, all the other things in life will take care of themselves. Not without a little bit of discipline and maybe some counsel along the way, but for sure. If we get that right, other things will take care of themselves. Here's how Solomon says it. Look at verse 18. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil in which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life that God has given him. For that is his law. Is it okay to enjoy a cup of coffee in the morning? Absolutely. It's, it's good and fitting to eat and drink. Is it okay to eat birthday cake? Yes, if you like gluten products, yeah, go for it, you know? Is it okay to maybe eat a little too much at Thanksgiving in a few weeks? Yeah, careful with the gluttony now. Yeah, enjoy it to the glory of God. It's, it's okay to enjoy your work even, to enjoy all the toil in which one toils under the sun. I love what I do for the Lord. I love work, not every day, not every Sunday. And it's okay for you to enjoy your work and to use the gifts that God has given you to bless your employer, to bless your employees if you own a business. Look at verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. Can I just say in verse 19, that's like, that's like 80% of Americans today. How many Americans are there? 330 million or something? What's 80% of that? It's like, I don't know, 250 million Americans fit into this category. Most of the people in this church, you are verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. You know what that is, Americans? You know what that is? Don't ever forget this. That is a gift of God. God gave you that. Praise him for it. And use it for his glory. And keep in mind, you're not going to eternity with it. You're not. I'm, I might be the one there doing your funeral and burying you. We're not putting anything in that casket with you. Maybe your best suit. That's it. Maybe a trinket. C.S. Lewis said this, you can read this on the screen. He said, the only thing we can keep are the things we freely give to God. That is so wise. Otherwise, the things take us and own us. The only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. When we try to keep for ourselves, 
What we try to keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. When we mistake the gift for the giver, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. Listen, let's, let's speak practically. If God has given you the ability to make lots of money, you know, praise God for that. I'm a little envious of that in a non-sinful way. Maybe a little sinful. If God has given you the ability to make money, go make money. Go make money and be generous with it for the Lord's work and for others. You know, the great Methodist evangelist, John Wesley, he said about money, he said, he said about money, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. You know, if you own a business, go employ some people and bless them. Don't be an Ebenezer Scrooge. Bless your employees. If you work for a company here in Decatur or somewhere else, use your skill to bless that company. Work heartily unto the Lord. Right? Men of Harvest Decatur, we spent a whole weekend last weekend talking about what that meant. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Such wisdom too. And just thinking that through and applying it into our lives. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work hard. Work from the soul. Do good work and serve. I think Andy said this. I can't remember who said it. It might have been Rob this last weekend, but work and serve as if Jesus is with you the whole time, which he is. And do it in such a way that you're pleasing him. Same thing with you that are young, that are in school. Work heartily unto the Lord at school and at work. And staying at home with your kids and changing diapers on your daughter and your son. Do it as unto the Lord. And here's another piece of advice. This is general enough to be applied at all ages, but I think especially for those of you who are a little older, has some gray in your beard, Don't hoard your money as you age. I think that's such a temptation for us as Americans because as we get a little older and the kids stop draining our resources, you get a little more upwardly mobile, right? You get a little more discretionary expenditures. Don't hoard your money. Andrew Carnegie, this is one of my favorite quotes the great titan of industry from the 19th century. He said this, this is on the screen. He says, the man who dies rich dies disgraced. <laughs> he said, the man who dies leaving behind him millions of available wealth with which he was to administer during his life will pass away unwept, unhonored, and unsung. And Carnegie's money, that's why when you go to New York, everything's like Carnegie this and Carnegie that. Because he, he gave his money away, he just gave it away. You know, he who dies with the most toys loses. Give it away. I heard a pastor say once, he said, you know, as you're preparing to die, he said, make sure the last check that you ever write, make sure it bounces. <laughs> and then he said, Preferably to your children. <laughs> now that's not, that's just a joke, okay? That's not counsel. <laughs> but the idea behind that is, 
Give your, give your money away. You can't take it with you. Use it for good. What great, I mean, we live in a day where we, we can give our money to such beautiful things happening around the world. This is in my notes. I'm talking off the cuff. This gets kind of dangerous, so just hear me. We live in a world where you can give money to missionaries who are preaching the gospel to people who have never heard it before. What a beautiful opportunity. If you die with a million dollars in the bank, shame on you. Give your money away and use it for better purposes than that. I better get back on script here. Look at verse 20. Let's finish this up. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Who's this talking about in verse 20? This is the person who enjoys life, enjoys work, fears God, put God's first, put, puts God first, and doesn't bow before mammon. The man who does that, the woman who does that, Solomon says, he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He's so beautifully distracted by God and the good things that God has given him. He doesn't even think about the bad things that happen in life. He just eases right into eternity. You ever met older people that just, maybe they have money, maybe they don't, you don't even know, they just, they just have such a joy about them. You just want to hang out with them. You just, you know, when, when Sonny and I first got married, she would go to some of these older people in the church and she'd just start asking, how do you have a good marriage? How are you so happy? How do you do this? And I was kind of intimidated by that as a young husband because I'm like, aren't you happy with me? Why are you asking all these people these questions? She was learning from them, learning what it means to be a good steward of your resources, to be a good husband, to be a good wife, to be a good human being prepared for eternity. Here's how you do it. You fear God. You worship well. Put money in its right place. And you enjoy life, the good gifts that God has given you. Amen? Everybody with me? Close with this. Let me just go back to that painting. We're about to take communion, so prepare your heart for that. I'm going to go back to that painting and, and show you it again. This is the money lender and his wife, okay? And... I want to show you something in this painting that another art aficionado pointed out to me. And I, I love this painting because it's, it's kind of preachy. You know, artists typically don't like being preachy, but this artist wants to preach something. I'll just tell you, it's a good sermon. You know, the, the wife is distracted by the money. The money lender is obsessed with money. She's not dutifully reading scriptures. I mean, there's not even a Bible in that guy's hand. So he's telling you something. Don't let your heart be obsessed with money or let it distract you from the Lord. But there's a secret message here within the painting. And I love when artists do this because does everybody see the, uh, see this mirror right here at the bottom on the table? How many of y'all have seen this painting before? Anybody? Maybe just a few of you. Okay. So advance the slide. We're going to zoom in on that, that mirror right there. So Macis, when he painted this painting, he painted that little mirror there, and there's a reflection of a person who, who looks kind of like a zombie. And if you see in the painting, he's reaching out for something. Everybody see that? And what he's reaching out for, in the window there, there's the image of a cross. 
And the idea here is, Macis is delivering it to it, is here's these two people that are distracted by money and zombie-like. What they really need, what they're really reaching out for, what they fail to grasp is the cross of Jesus Christ. And even behind that, what's beautiful here, there's the cross and the window pane. There's also a church. You might not be able to see it. And some people have said that this zombie-like person who is reaching out, it's actually a self-portrait of Macis. He's painting a picture of himself reaching out. He's so distracted in Antwerp, in this place of commerce and business, and just his soul, zombie-like, is crying out for something better, is reaching out for something better. He wants something better than the obsession with money that surrounds him. What does he want? He wants the cross. He wants the church of Jesus Christ. Can I just tell you, Harvest Decatur, that'll preach. <laughs> for, a, for an artist, that guy can preach with his painting. I should know, I'm a preacher. <laughs> and the question he's asking, the question I'm asking, who are you going to serve, God or mammon? Who's your God? God doesn't allow polytheism. I'll take Jesus. Thank you very much. He's my God. I love him and I serve him. And what's beautiful about that relationship is when I, when I do put God first, when I acknowledge him as Lord, then he gives money as a beautiful gift to be used for his glory. That's what I want. That's what I want for you. Let's pray together and, and we can take communion. Lord, we confess as Americans that sometimes too often money is our functional God. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room right now who needs to confess and repent of that, help them. And Lord, I'm so grateful that in our sinfulness, even those who are guilty of greed and guilty of lust and guilty of malice and slander, all manner of sin, Lord, you willingly forgive. In fact, it's more than that. You died for that sin. You died to remove that sin from our heart. Lord, thank you for the free gift of salvation that comes through the cross. Thank you, Lord, that even in our sinfulness, even the worst kinds of sins, we can be forgiven through faith in Christ our Savior. God, help us, I pray, to worship you and you alone, to use and enjoy the good gifts that you've given us, but to never mistake the gifts for the giver. And Lord, we know someday we will go into a casket empty-handed 
we can't take our possessions with us, Lord, but we also know that we will live eternally with you. We'll have no need for money or riches in eternity because we'll be filled with joy in the presence of the Lord forever. We look forward to that day.